Well, if you would take out your Bibles and turn to them uh, to Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to use one this morning, uh, you should find a Bible in the uh, seat in front of you, somewhere in that row underneath, and you'll find our passage in that Bible on page 982. Well, we're continuing this morning and drawing uh, this letter to a close. This letter is the letter, of course, that Paul wrote from prison, wrote this letter while imprisoned in Rome, awaiting trial under 24-7 guard uh, by the Praetorian Guard. And Paul uh, planted this church that he is now writing to roughly 10 years prior. And this church, as we have said, has been a great supporter of Paul. If you read all of Paul's letters, perhaps there's no church that he has as fond a relationship with than with this church in Philippi. But as we mentioned last week, even healthy, loving, solid churches have problems. And so the letter to the Philippians, just like every other church that Paul writes, or every other letter that Paul writes to every other church, this letter has instruction and exhortation and commands. Uh, If you read through Paul's letters, what you find is a pattern in them that Paul first lays out what is true of the Christian. Sometimes it's it's for pretty much the whole first half of the letter. Uh, He lays out what is true of us, the indicatives, the things that uh, now are true because we are in Christ. And then he moves from what is true of us to how, therefore, we ought to live or act or treat one another. Philippians is the same way. And so here at the end of the letter, he begins to deal with problems and he begins to exhort these Philippians. And if you look, as I mentioned last week, uh, at chapter 4 beginning at verse 2 and all the way through verse 9, you see eight exhortations there. Uh, Paul just starts kind of unloading on them with all of these commands and things that he is calling them to do, ways that he is calling them to live. And you'll see there that, that in that section, he's kind of batched them in a way. He has uh, verses 4 through 7 kind of in one batch, and then 8 and 9 in another. And he ends each section there with a, uh, with a statement having to do with God's peace. Verse 7, which we'll look at today, he says, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. And then in verse 9, he says, and the God of peace will be with you. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at two verses, and it is a a section, even though it's two verses, it's a section that's probably well known to you, it's probably a section that you've quoted many times, it's a section of Scripture that has been a blessing to many Christians throughout the millennia. Our text is Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. It says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds 
in Christ Jesus. This text is about anxiety. The, um, the, the title of this sermon, Pray and Let God Worry, is actually a quote from Martin Luther. And I thought it was apt for this passage because I, as a pastor, it seems like not only in my own life, but also in the lives of a lot of you, a lot of Christians, and, and not only members of this church, but other Christians that I talk to, and just people that I talk to or see on YouTube or whatever it may be, it seems we are just full of anxiety, that anxious feelings are kind of exploding. And I was reading, one of the things I've been doing this year is reading more books on productivity, and one of the books I just happened to be reading is uh, by a guy named Jordan Rayner. And in one section of the book, he says, look, three things happened in 2007. He says, the iPhone was introduced, Americans began a 10-year 59% decrease in productivity compared to the previous decade, and anxiety exploded, especially in teenagers. And then he quotes this uh, university scholar, San Diego State University professor Gene Twenge, I, be I believe you pronounce it. Uh, this person's been studying psychological trends in young people for more than 25 years and said that there was a massive spike in anxiety in kids born between 1995 and 2012, and that that massive spike corresponded to exactly the moment when the proportion of Americans who owned a smartphone surpassed 50%. So, I don't, this isn't a sermon of, against smartphones, but my point is just that anxiety has been ratcheting up. But as we'll see in our passage, uh, anxiety has been around for a long time. Paul says in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So Paul begins by telling the Philippians, look, don't be anxious about anything. I think it's implying here that, that he, even though being in Rome, far away from the church, has caught wind that there's a lot of anxiety in the church. And so he has to guard them against it. Now, we don't know what's causing them the anxiety, Scholars suggest that maybe it's just simply living in a Roman colony in Philippi trying to live according to God's design. Uh, we don't know uh, what, it, what it must have been like, but we, I mean, we know that Philippi was a wealthy, prominent city, but being a Roman colony, it, 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 it had a lot of Roman influence, it was a pagan city, and that Obviously, under that time in, in history, everyone in that area was under the, ru the rule of Emperor Nero, who was no friend of Christians. Uh, we know Paul and Silas were thrown in prison in Philippi for preaching the gospel. So maybe that's all it is. We don't know what's causing all the anxiety. Maybe it's, it's just, again, trying to be a Christian in that city. But it doesn't really matter because what Paul is saying to them is, don't be anxious about any of it. It doesn't matter what is causing the anxiety. Do not be anxious about anything. But instead, in everything, 
the everything corresponds with the anything. In everything, instead of being anxious, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, it doesn't matter to Paul what it is that's causing you anxiety. There are countless things that press in on us each day. And the way that this is worded, it's almost as though as we go about living our lives, there are these countless things that are pressing in on us that could be creating countless ideas and thoughts in our minds, feelings in our hearts, that if we hold on to those things, create anxiety. That if we walk around holding on to all of these things, anxiety begins to build up. And this is what I tend to do. When I read this passage, it was like you know, looking in a mirror. When I'm bothered by things, I tend to mull them over. I tend to think them through. I tend to discuss them with Michelle. I do everything but pray. I mean, it's like 15 things that go on in my mind and, and actions that I take, and it's usually Michelle who has to remind me to pray about them. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is, is urging us He's, in fact, commanding us. This is, this is a command. Instead of holding them in, the Greek here is passive in nature. Um, let them be made known to God. He's saying instead of holding these things in, turn them into requests for God and let them go. Again, Martin Luther, pray and let God worry. And the preposition here is important, I think. Because he doesn't just say, even though our translation, it makes sense why our English translation would translate it this way, let your request be made known to God. But the actual preposition there is not just to God, it's towards God. The idea that Paul is getting at here is that there's not just some God somewhere, some power somewhere that we are to sort of like let our request go out into the ether and hope it gets picked up somewhere. Paul, by saying, let your request be known, made known towards God, he's using the same preposition that John used in John 1.1 when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word, it says, was with God, but that actual word with is toward God. That Jesus, in his pre-incarnate state, was in a very close relationship with the Father. Remember, Paul has just made that statement, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. He is with you. He is your Father. He is towards you. Let your requests be made known to this God who loves you. Peter, in his own kind of way of saying the same thing, he, said, he uses a, a, a fisherman's analogy, cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So Paul says, let your requests be made known to him. And by requests here, he means specific requests. I think it is fine for us. There's no problem if we just give general requests. Lord, I'm, I'm, I feel anxious. Lord, I'm scared. There's no problem with those prayers. It's not, not that there's a problem with it. But if you're trying to get rid of anxiety, Paul is saying what you do is you name the specific thing that's bothering you. Lord, I'm about to have this meeting with my boss, and I don't know how it will go, and so I'm asking you to please take care of this for me. 
specific requests. Let them be made known to God. Michelle, in order to help me in my prayer, bought me a prayer journal for Christmas. Uh, put it in a stocking, which I sometimes don't get. The kids always get stockings. Usually Michelle and mine are just empty hanging there. But this Christmas, it was full of stuff from her. She said, yeah, I wanted you to have fun too. So as I'm digging through and pulling out all the goodies, one of the things is this prayer journal. And one of the things that I love about this so far is that the first like 10 pages of it have all these spaces for specific prayer requests that somebody will ask me to pray for them. And as a pastor, I get a lot of those. And so I can write those in specifically, pray specifically for those things, and then there's a block right next to it where I can write in what the answer was. What happened with that thing that you've asked me to pray? And then I can write it in and see over the course of a year God answering specific prayers. <clears throat> Why do I need a prayer journal? Why does Paul need to tell us to do this? It's because prayer is difficult. You may recall that when Jesus had his apostles walking with him all over the place, uh, and he was teaching lots of things, when they had a chance to ask him what they wanted help with, they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. It's a struggle to pray. And one of the reasons, at least for me, it's a struggle to pray is because I know mentally that the one that I'm revealing these requests to already knows everything. He's omniscient. He made me. He has my future planned. Part of it, I think, is just a logical block there that why do I need to tell God what's going on? He already knows what's going on. Psalm 139, you know when I sit down, you know when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, you search out my path, my lying down, or you're acquainted with all of my ways, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Psalm 147, great is our Lord, abundant in power, his understanding is infinite. Isaiah 46, I am God. There is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. I call a bird of prey from the east. I call the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose, and I will do it. That's our God. He doesn't need to know what we're thinking. He knows it. But Paul says, let your request be made known to God, not to each other. He's not saying, look, if you want to cure anxiety, you know, share your hardship with one another in church. Hopefully we are going to do that. Hopefully we are doing that. But he's saying, let, them, let your request be made known to God, the one person who doesn't need revelation. And yet, Jesus acknowledged that. When Jesus was instructing about prayer, what did he say? It's amazing what he said. When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they're going to be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So here Jesus is instructing in prayer telling us to pray, 
and at the same time saying, you know, God already knows everything that you need before you say it. But you see, Jesus doesn't see any contradiction there. He has no problem whatsoever in saying, your father already knows what you need before you ask him, so pray. In his mind, that's just what you do as followers of the Lord. Okay, but how? How do we pray? Well, Paul says here in Philippians, sometimes it will be by simple prayer. He uses two words here. Notice he uses two words for, for, for the same, sort of the same thing. The one word that he uses translated prayer is simply talking to God. Sometimes we will talk to God. And then this other word that is translated supplication, by prayer and supplication, that word supplication, it means an intense or earnest pleading. There's two types of conversations that we will typically find ourselves in as human beings and as Christians. There's going to be times, hopefully most of the time in our lives, will be daily routine living where we're going out to buy the milk and we're going to drop the kids off at school and then we're going to work and we're going to do whatever we do at work and, and all of these things are just taking place. And what Paul is saying is that during those times, we're called simply to talk, to have, in, in a sense, a conversation with the Lord all the time. Pray without ceasing. Pray at all times. You hear this all the time. That's just talking to God about your day. But Paul acknowledges there's going to be times in our lives when the situation we find ourselves in is not normal. In fact, sometimes it's going to be very stressful. And at those times, he says, we are to, and we're, he probably doesn't even have to tell us to do it this way, but those times we're going to find ourselves earnestly pleading with God. So at all times, Paul says, and I think the key here. This key phrase that kind of stands out, if you will, if, if you memorize this passage or even sort of have it memorized, you probably skip over this one clause here. You probably have memorized it, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Probably the key phrase in all this is with thanksgiving. He throws that in there. In other words, whether we're going out to buy the groceries or whether there are no groceries because a flood has wiped out every grocery store within 20 miles, whether we're talking to God about our day or pleading earnestly that he would provide food, Paul is saying in any one of those situations, we are to pray with thanksgiving. It doesn't matter what the situation is. We are always to be addressing God with thanksgiving even though our conversation with God will look very different depending on the circumstance. The idea of thanking God at all times is found all over Scripture. The Psalms are just full of it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Ephesians 5, 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.17, 
Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And the more I thought about that this week, the more I started thinking perhaps the with thanksgiving clause there is the key to battling anxiety, to kind of defeating anxiety, because giving thanks reminds us of who it is that we're going to with our requests. That's why, if you've been here long enough, you'll probably notice that our pastoral prayer, what is a pastoral prayer? We have lots of different prayers going on throughout a service, but a pastoral prayer is really primarily focused on asking God for things that we need. That's primarily what a, it's, it's sort of a shepherding prayer. It's a prayer that's caring for the flock. It's asking God to protect us, to provide for us. But if you've been here long enough, you know that some of our pastoral prayer, in fact, the beginning of our pastoral prayer is mainly focused on praising God and thanking him for what he's already done. Because by doing that, it sets our minds in the right place that the one that we are asking for for all of these other things has already done far greater things for us in Christ. That if we're asking God to help us be transparent with one another in our conversations and we've already thanked him for sending Christ to die on the cross and giving us eternal life and an eternal home in heaven with him, then asking him to help us to be transparent is like child's play to a God who's already done all of that. You know, if I'm at the gym and I'm going to try for my maximum bench press, I don't just lay down on the bench and call out, hey, can somebody help me and give me a spot? No, first I scan the room and I go to the biggest guy there and I say, hey, do you mind helping me and spotting me while I try to bench all of this weight? And the reason I do that is because I want to make sure that the guy I'm asking for help is capable of giving it. I don't want to die trying to do a bench press max. So when you pray with thanksgiving, you are beginning by reminding yourself not only of who this God is, but of what he's already done for you and what he has already done to care for you and to help you before you ask him for this other thing that you need help for. We were discussing this in the men's study, and one of the guys there uh, made the point of saying, you know, this is something that has developed in me over time. Because he was saying, I have had a number of job losses over the last so many years that you know, and the first time I lost my job, it was really devastating to me. And, I, and I, it caused me a lot of anxiety and it caused me a lot of stress. But, but after I saw God provide another job for me, and then I saw him do it again, he said, now when I lose my job or when I lost it this last time, you know, it's interesting, I went into prayer far differently than I did the first time. 
He said, my prayer basically, and I'll, I'll try to sum it up here, and he's sitting in here, so I hope I don't misquote you. But he basically said, look, look my prayer goes something like this, Lord, thank you because I know you've already got this. You either have another job for me or you've got something else for me, but whatever you've got is good for me because you are good. Whatever you have is better than whatever I would come up with because you are God and I'm not. Right now, that is a prayer that helps with anxiety. That's the kind of prayer. You're thanking God already that he is a God who can and has provided for you. And Paul says that when you do this, look at what he says, that's exactly what's going to happen in verse 7. When you do this, when you let your requests be made known to God by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice that Paul really gets specific here, if you will, that the prayer that we're uttering here, these requests, he's now, you know, even though we know that theologically, he's making clear here that the prayer isn't for God's sake, it's for our sake. He doesn't, again, he doesn't need us to tell him what we need. He already knows it. But what Paul says is that when we pray, we exchange anxiety for peace. One New Testament scholar puts it this way, why are the requests of the Philippians to be made known to God? Not because he is unaware either of either the petitions or their content. Rather, by bringing to him their anxieties, they are laying out all their troubles before him. They're casting all their cares upon him, and in so doing, the Philippians acknowledge their total dependence on God, and at the same time, they are assured that he knows their earnest desires because they have told him of them. That last sentence there, I think, is really key. God already knows what we need, but we can forget that. We can forget him. We can so block him out of our, the, the, the problems of this world can so take up our field of vision that he gets lost. When we formulate the thing that's bothering us and we go to him, then we, he says, now finally are assured ourselves that he knows about our problems. He already knows, but we forget that. We need to tell him because then we're assured that now God knows. I know what my problems are. Probably 25 other people in my life know, but they can't do anything about it either. But now God knows. And I know he knows because I told him what my problems are. And when we do this, Paul says, when we formulate our requests and we bring them to him, we get his peace. This phrase, the peace of God, is found nowhere else in the entire New Testament. 
it's unique to this passage. And if we think about this phrase, the peace of God, just like any um, construction like this, uh, it could mean one of two things. When you have a phrase like that, the peace of God, it could mean either the peace that God gives us, or it could mean God's peace, the peace that he alone has. It could mean either one of those things. It could mean the peace that God gives to us or the peace that God possesses. If you think about God, he, among all persons in existence, is the one person who dwells in complete and perfect peace. There is nothing that happens, nothing. The universe could explode, and God would not only know about it, he would have planned it. There's there's nothing that can give him anxiety. There's nothing that can take him by surprise. He knows the end from the beginning. He's planned the end from the beginning. His counsel will stand. What in the world could there be that could give God anything less than perfect peace? He's never stressed. He's never full of anxiety. He's in control of all circumstances. And perhaps that's what Paul's talking about. God's peace, the peace that he has, Perhaps he left it ambiguous because he means both. The peace that we receive, the peace that God gives, is the peace that God and God alone possesses. In other words, when we pray, we exchange our anxiety for a supernatural peace that only God can give. This world can only offer us so much peace. What what can it really give us? The world that is itself inflamed and full of anxiety, when we turn to it for peace, what, what can it give us? Even fellow Christians, unless they're bringing the word of God to us, I mean, what can they really give us to give us peace? They're in the same boat that we're in. In other words, what Paul is saying, that we receive a heavenly peace rather than an earthly peace. And he goes into that here when he says that what we receive is a peace that surpasses all understanding. Now that phrase, this peace that surpasses all understanding, can again itself have two meanings. It could mean... And it's the way that I've always read this passage until this week. Uh, that happens a lot when you really dig into a passage of Scripture. Some, there's all kinds of things that come out that you say, I never noticed that before. Until this week, when I read that it's a peace that surpasses all understanding, the way I always understood that is that it's God's peace is completely beyond all power of human comprehension. That this peace is a peace that you cannot explain logically. That it is a supernatural peace that transcends logic and reason and thought. You can't really explain how you have it, you just have it. And that could be what Paul is talking about here. However, That Greek word that is translated surpasses, it it means almost all the time is far superior to. 
It's used in, in like a comparative sense, generally speaking. So maybe what Paul is saying is that God's peace provided through prayer is far superior to any kind of peace that you could have gained by any amount of knowledge or understanding or uh, wisdom about this thing that's going on that you gained through studying it. See, if you think about it, oftentimes our anxiety, when I think about anxiety, so often my anxiety and perhaps yours is caused by fear of the unknown. Why am I being anxious? Why am I getting uptight about this thing or be, becoming anxious about this thing? It's because I don't know what will happen, right? I, I don't know what's going to happen with the economy, so I get anxious. I, I don't know what's going to happen when I go to the dentist, what he's going to find and what he's going to have to recommend and what he's going to have to do, so I start to get anxious. I don't know what the kids in school are going to say about this thing that I either have done or these, this piece of clothing that I'm wearing or whatever, and so I don't know what they're going to do, I don't know how they're going to respond, and so I begin to get anxious. All of these things, right? And so we might be tempted to think, if, if I only knew what would happen, if I only had all knowledge and all understanding of the future, if I just knew knowledge, if I had all understanding, then I'd be okay. Essentially, what we're saying is, if I knew as God knows, then I wouldn't be anxious. And maybe Paul is recognizing that temptation in all of us, and he's saying, look, the peace of God that comes from prayer is far superior than any peace that you would have ever gotten by knowledge and understanding the situation. In fact, maybe Paul's saying, even if you had all knowledge, even if you had all understanding, you'd still be anxious. Why? Because you're not God. Only God can know all things and not be anxious. You would have all knowledge, but you wouldn't have all power. You would have no control over the situation, and you would still be anxious. It is far better, Paul is saying, perhaps, to not have all understanding and just let your request be made known to God through prayer and receive his peace that way. Again, I think it's both. I think what Paul is essentially saying is God's peace is something that transcends all human comprehension. God's peace is not something that you could have thought of. It's not something that you can necessarily draw a, a line A, B, C and, and figure out exactly how it all works. And at the same time, his peace is far greater and far superior to any knowledge that you could have gained by studying the situation. Further, this peace of God, it does something for us. Paul says that it guards our hearts and our minds. One scholar puts it this way, Paul uses a vivid military term, used of a detachment of soldiers who stand guard over a city and protect it from attack. 
So what Paul is doing here, he's using a word that pictures God's peace as a garrison, guarding our hearts and minds and protecting them from assaults. As we live our lives, we're going to be constantly assaulted every day. I don't think there's a day that goes by that doesn't have some challenge for me that day, something that could cause me anxiety. Paul is saying, the more you lay your requests to God, the more you receive this peace, and the more you receive this peace, the more your hearts and your minds are guarded against anxiety and attack. Notice here, what guards our hearts and our minds from daily anxiety? It's it's important to note that the thing that guards our hearts and our minds is the peace that we receive as a byproduct of prayer itself. This is important because I think oftentimes we think that the peace that we're going to receive is the peace that is a byproduct of a specific answer to our prayer. Like, I need a job I can't pay the bills, so I'm going to ask God to provide a job, and I'll have peace when God provides the job. But Paul is saying here that the peace that you receive, you receive regardless of what the answer is. God doesn't, you don't have to wait for peace until God answers specifically. By simply praying about it. You receive peace even if you don't have a job for another year. You can have the peace that comes and surpasses all understanding. Finally, and another very important thing to remember and note here, the peace of God is promised if we pray. There's no peace of God in this sense, that's promised if we don't pray. There's no promise in here of that. If we, if we have any peace from God without praying, it's simply by God's grace alone. There, there, there's no other way to explain it. We have peace with God from a, a war standpoint. If you're in Christ, you are no longer under any condemnation. You have peace with God. But this kind of peace... The peace that guards your hearts and your minds is not promised to you unless you pray. If you continue on in prayerlessness, as far as this passage is concerned, you're going to continue on in anxiety. There's there's going to be no relief from anxiety unless you pray. And notice here, finally, there, there is no promise of peace to anyone who stands outside of Christ. Paul says that this peace of God is going to be yours in Christ Jesus. That super important phrase used for Paul that refers to the sphere in which this divine peace happens. This peace only ever and always happens for anyone only who is in union with Christ. If you are outside of Christ, there is no peace for you at all. The only peace that you could ever have if you're outside of union with Christ is a general sense of peace that you get from God's common grace, what Scripture talks about. But Scripture says that if you're outside of Christ, 
that you are actually at war with God. You are in a state of enmity with God, not peace with God. So don't expect at all to receive any kind of feelings of peace that guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. And if you're in that situation, then I just plead with you today, don't be in that situation any longer. If you are in a situation where you're outside of Christ and at war with Christ, I pray that you would come and fall down at the foot of the cross today, that you may be at peace. I'll close by pointing out something that came to me this week, and that is this. You know, if anyone gives us a picture of prayer, it's, it's our Lord. And if you think about it, Jesus gave up perfect peace. When he was from all eternity uh, in, a, in a John 1-1 relationship with the Father, he had perfect peace. No cause for anxiety whatsoever. And he gave up that position to willingly take on flesh and enter into a world of anxiety and trouble and no peace. And yet, at the same time, what do we find in Christ? We find someone who always is in conversation with his Father. We talked about how there are prayers and supplications that we make. And as we kind of look at Jesus throughout his life, even when he's on a boat that is being swamped by a hurricane in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, he shows no anxiety. I mean, he calmly rebukes the wind and the waves and then challenges his disciples. Why did you have no faith? Always he's praying. He's always going off to a mountain to pray to his father. He prays to his father. He's talking about how I always do my father's will. He seems like he has no cause for anxiety. And then you wonder, well, was there ever a time when the Lord Jesus had to go to a time of supplication to his father? And you do find it. There's one time recorded when Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground with his face to the ground and he prayed saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Please, Father, remove this cup from me. If there's anyone who ever earnestly pleaded with our Heavenly Father, it was him. And what was the Father's answer? The answer was no. He let his requests be made known to his Father with sweats of drops of blood. And the answer that came back was, no, my son, for it is my will that you be crushed for their iniquities. But interestingly, what do we find that happens? He gets up from that prayer, and he has an almost uncanny settledness 
to his soul. Even when that was the answer, you are going to have to go to the cross and bear my wrath. He stands up with a resolve that seems to defy any explanation. And you see, because he did that for you and me, Christian, Scripture says, he was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brings us peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for what our Lord did. We are so thankful that he, on the night he was betrayed, that he pleaded with you and, and gave us an example of supplication. But we're even more thankful, Father, that he went through with it and followed your will, that he absorbed your wrath so that we now can come before you and receive your peace. We pray that you would help us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.